Welcome. This is the Solar Disruption Theory Podcast, where our goal is to truly transform the industry and shake up the norm. Each month, we'll be sitting down with CEOs, activists, and other solar experts to see how far the rabbit hole goes. Entrepreneur, thought leader, and clean energy enthusiast Brett Bushy is our co-host and the CEO of Freedom Forever. With his help, Freedom Forever has become laser-focused on serving others and the planet. This caused the company to make the Inc. 500 list of fastest-growing companies two years in a row. With his solar knowledge and extensive broadcast experience at CNN, Fox, and AMC, we'll get a deep look into the world of solar and how we're disrupting its core. Today, we have the privilege to sit down with sustainable finance powerhouse, esteemed author, podcaster, and entrepreneur Jigger Shaw. Jigger is the president and co-founder of Generate Capital. Previously, Jigger was the founder and CEO of Sun Edison, where he pioneered No Money Down Solar and created the largest solar services company in the world. After Sun Edison, Jigger served as the founding CEO of the Carbon War Room, a global nonprofit founded by Sir Richard Branson and Virgin Unite to help entrepreneurs address climate change. Jigger is dedicated to helping entrepreneurs and large companies alike implement resource efficiency solutions using pay-as-you-save project finance models. With so much knowledge and experience, we can't wait to see what happens next. We have harnessed the power of the sun. What matters now is what we do with it. This is Solar Disruption Theory. Created by Freedom Forever. Hey everyone, I'm Sean McCready and with me as always is Freedom Forever CEO Brett Bushy. Today we're joined by Jigger Shaw, president and co-founder of Generate Capital. Hey Jigger, thank you so much for joining us. Awesome, I appreciate it. All righty, well um, I'm going to start with... um, one, I, I like to, I pride myself on being a, a lifetime roller skater. And I was listening to your, your podcast on green tech media and you had a story about, uh, roller skating upstairs. Can, can you just tell me that story one more time? Oh, I don't remember that story. Really? What did I say? Oh, yeah. So, uh, you said that when you were younger growing up, your mom would let you roller skate around in the, in the basement on the concrete. And, uh, oh, right. That's true. Yeah. And, uh, you would, uh, climb flights of stairs in your skates. Yeah, no, I'm happy to tell you that one again. Yeah. It's so funny. <laughs> um, yeah. So what, what's that all about? You grew up in, you grew up in small town America, but you were born in India and, and this was, this was part of that story. How, how'd that story go? Yeah, so I was born in India. My dad was doing residency, so we lived in Chicago Ridge at the time, which is a suburb of Chicago. And uh, and my mom used to do laundry in the basement. There was concrete floors, so she'd strap on roller skates on my feet and let me roller skate downstairs. And then I would beg her to roller skate longer after she was done, so she'd walk upstairs, and I would try to get up the stairs with my roller skates, which you can imagine are really hard. And I'd, I'd get exhausted from from trying. And so then I'd just go to sleep on the staircase and one of the neighbors would find me and carry me up to my mom's apartment. <laughs> well, that's not a story of tenacity. I don't know what it is. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> um, and so uh, how, you were, did you do high school in Chicago or wh- how long were you in, in Illinois? Oh, I was only in Chicago until I was around eight and then I moved to Sterling, Illinois, which is two and a half hours west of Chicago. Gotcha. Okay. And um, 
So just, I mean, kind of a broad story. What's your journey like from engineer and marketing expert to creating some of the most game changing financial models that we know of today? Oh, gosh. Um, well, so my brain has always been more entrepreneurial um, than most. And so that's sort of where I start from. My my dad, even though, you know, he was a physician, ran a couple of businesses with, you know, his doctor's practice and, you know, other things. And so, you know, I learned from an early age what it meant to really run a business and how much sacrifice it took. I think my dad had to, you know, take very little salary for 10 years while he was building his practice and, you know, reinvest all of that money back into growing the business. Um, and so that's sort of my, how my brain, I think, was wired from a young age and, you know, realized early on that I wanted to work in renewable energy. And everyone I talked to said, well, if you want to work in renewable energy, you have to be an engineer. Uh, I was like, well, okay, I guess I'll have to be an engineer. <laughs> I don't know that engineering was the exact right career for me. Um, but it frankly was hugely valuable in terms of just, you know, learning how the world works. I think today there's a level of technology that we all take for granted. And I don't think many of us are equipped with the right level of understanding and how the mechanical world that we live in actually works. You know, how does an air conditioning system work? How does, you know, your keypad on your garage actually work to open your garage? I mean, all these little things that, that we used to actually just understand, but today I think we understand less of. Right. And, uh, you know, speaking of your entrepreneurial mind, um, you wrote a book and it's creating climate wealth and I found a great review for it. And this one was really what stood out. And it says everything Jigger has done proves that profits in energy aren't just made in dirty fuels. Thanks to entrepreneurs like Jigger, climate change solutions are attracting investors, greener jobs are being created and industries are saving big money on energy costs. And now that wasn't by some guy off the street. That was Sir Richard Branson. So that's, <laughs> that's a pretty, pretty big deal in my eyes. Um, so for our listeners, can you go over some of the main points of the book and talk about what sparked the inspiration to write it? Yeah, well, you know, so, so after I sold Sun Edison in 2009, uh, you know, I joined uh, Sir Richard Branson to start the Carbon War Room. And largely what we did in that nonprofit was try to figure out what was really in the way um, of entrepreneurs, you know, innovating our way out of this problem with climate change. And what we found was while there were a lot of, you know, policy related things that were on the list, there were many market-based things that were on the list as well. There were buyers and sellers that really just weren't coming together uh, because of standard business school 101 uh, market inefficiencies, right? Things like um, access to information, right? Where, for instance, ship owners just didn't know what the fuel economy was of the ships that they were chartering, even though they had to pay the fuel as a pass-through. It's not unlike you renting a U-Haul if you're moving from New York to LA and you're paying, you know, $39.95 a day, but you also have to pay the fuel. Well, if you knew that one of those U-Hauls used half as much fuel as the other one, that would have saved you a lot of money. But it's not posted on the U-Haul when you go out and pick it up. So how would you know which one to pick, right? So there's a lot of these market failures like that, that we were able to fill as the carbon war room which doesn't say that policy is not needed. It certainly is. But there were these other failures that were in the way as well. And that's where we chose to spend our time. And it's that inspiration that I took 
to write the book, Creating Climate Wealth, and really helping people understand where those market failures were um, that are holding us back to, you know, really realizing uh, climate wealth. With your early days of Sun Edison, I only got into the solar industry in 2015. And I see a lot of dysfunction still in the industry today, but I can't imagine what you faced in 2003 to 2009 at Sun Edison. And I'd love just to kind of hear some early stories to help me kind of understand the history of how we got to this point. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that when you think about the the level of uh, data that we use today, um, that didn't exist back in 2003. So when you think about, um, like for instance, how did solar panels interact with inverters? You would think that it was a pretty standard thing. Like this is a 230 watt panel. This is a 240 watt panel. This is a inverter. You sort of, you know, do the math and it comes out. When we did the data science on that, the number one most profitable panel that we ever purchased was an evergreen solar panel. If you remember that manufacturer, which is no longer in place in Massachusetts, they made panels that had a plus or minus two watt accuracy. And that accuracy really mattered. And the worst panel we used was Sharp. Sharp had a plus or minus 5% accuracy. And so then when you think about the net kilowatt hour production, we were getting about 6% more power out, uh, kilowatt hours out of a solar panel using evergreen solar than we were with Sharp. Um, and some of that variation even went to the inverter level, right? If you used a advanced energy inverter versus a SATCON inverter back then versus a Xantrax inverter, you actually got different uh, outputs because the max peak power trackers were operating differently, right? So it used to be that people basically had this ability to sort of just say, well, the, my math looks right. We should just move forward. Today, the level of precision by which people move through all of these calculations is just so much higher and so much better. How in speaking of Sun Edison is that you are the man that invented essentially the PPA. What inspired you? How did that come to fruition? Well, I don't know that it was, you know, some sort of light bulb moment. Um, you know, I had been working in the wind and solar industry for the better part of four years at the time. 1995 is when I started. And you realized early on that every time you talk to somebody, have some sort of, um, you know, like realization that solar was a like to have, not a need to have purchase. Get through the sales process, you're almost there. They're going to sign a contract and, you know, their tractor breaks down. Their kid really needs to go to a special summer camp that costs $3,000 a week or their car breaks down or whatever. And you're like, you know, oh, crap, I just lost the sale because the money they had saved up for the solar system is now going for another purchase. So you start to think about, well, what if I didn't need them to like save up money to pay for solar? What if there was actually, you know, another way to get solar? And then you just keep ruminating about that in your head. And, you know, the power purchase agreement and solar as a service or infrastructure as a service wasn't new. I mean, people had used it for years. I mean, even in the car business, in the 1930s, the car companies realized that they weren't actually selling a lot of cars um, except to affluent people. And they invented car financing 
right? That's why all the auto companies had their own Ford Motor Credit or, you know, GMAC or other types of auto financing divisions because they realized it helped them sell a lot more cars. And so I just did the practical application of it to the solar industry, but I don't know that I invented anything. And, and I have in, in the kind of sticking in the talk track of Sun Edison, and um, I'm fascinated by this. I have a private equity background. And in 2009, when you sold, typically you want the founder sitting on the board, kind of championing it, helping you with the transition. And you chose not to serve on the board with Sun Edison. And then you fast forward another seven years and you may have made some comments about, you know, um, it was founded by visionaries and revolutionaries, and then the company was taken down by mercenaries. I'd love for you to expand on that if you could. Yeah, I think that, you know, we were certainly revolutionary when we started Sun Edison. I mean, there was just all sorts of problems, whether it was how to get large corporations to sign up to 20-year contracts or how to get, you know, the financing of the construction done for solar or whether it was trying to figure out how to get banks to even consider solar as a safe asset. I mean, today everyone thinks it's one of the safest assets in the world. Uh, and you're starting to get financing interest rates uh, that are the same as you would get for an airport or a toll road. But back then, you know, people thought everything was super risky. And so it was an extraordinary experience where every day we just found more problems and every day we worked, woke up to attempt to solve them, right? It was really extraordinary. And I think when we sold the company uh, to MEMC at the time, I remember talking to the CEO and others and saying to them, look, you know, we're really just a glorified construction company, right? That the way this works is you don't use your own balance sheet. You make sure you get paid milestone payments from the banks and other people and you use other people's money, right? That's, that's how this works. The construction companies who use their own balance sheet, oftentimes, you know, the ones who really lose a lot of money and, they really didn't listen and they just kept trying to, you know, raise the stock price by doing things that were, you know, completely nonsensical, in my opinion, using their balance sheet to build solar projects that they didn't have buyers lined up for, for instance. And then even after they did a yield co, they, which I think is a really good idea, they didn't show discipline around what they put in the yield co. They said, well, you know, we bought these assets, the stock market loved us, the stock price went up by more than we paid for the assets, therefore, this was accretive. Not knowing that the stock market goes up and down, and that at some point, the music's going to stop. And so they're really being mercenary around, like, just living and dying by the stock price, instead of actually doing the, the core fundamental analysis that we had to do early on to prove to people that this asset class was worth investing in. And because of my background, I've had public companies, privately held companies. Um, I personally have no interest long-term going public because sometimes I feel like you become a slave to the next quarter and you're focused on short-term versus long-term. So do you think that has contributed to some of the failures of some of the companies that have tried to scale like Sun Edison, um, Solar City, and now Tesla? I'd love to hear your feedback on that. Well, look, I think that stock market, the stock market is an interesting place. It's certainly a lot more expensive to be public today than it was 20 years ago. 
And it's certainly the case that um, the stock price can go up and down seemingly for reasons that are outside of your control. Uh, you know, Saudi Arabia gets some sort of attack at a refinery or, or oil prices go up or down, you know, even though oil is not directly correlated with solar, um, you see some effect there. So that part of it is a little bit volatile and unhelpful. But on the other hand, you get far better market valuations, right? So if you're a private company like we are today at Generate Capital, um, the market, you know, sort of ratios that you get in terms of, you know, X times earnings or whatever that people are willing to pay for your stock is far lower than it would be if it was public. And so, so, you know, you get the good with the bad. My own point of view on this stuff is if you actually run a disciplined company and you do good fundamental analysis and you actually are willing to engage with your detractors, and really understand um, what's happening, then you end up in a situation where you know you can be comfortable with the decisions that you make, and you hope that the public markets and others will realize the wisdom of the discipline that you showed uh, over time, right? And I think that that's the the core way to game the public markets is really to be you know, honest and truthful about what the transactions are and what they're not. I think making up residual value assumptions or figuring out how to game the tax equity markets or all that stuff, that's temporary and maybe might goose your stock for one quarter, but it isn't a way to create a long-term profitable business. We talked a little bit about Sun Edison. Um, could you give us your thoughts on the decline of SolarCity slash Tesla on how we got to that point, because a lot of people point and look at them as a failure now in the solar space, but they did some amazing things and they scaled and they, you know, going from, you know, installing a thousand to 22,000 a month. Uh, we had Tange Sarah, who was on the podcast last week. I'd love to give your thoughts on what happened there, because a lot of people I think have this misconception of that they failed at scale. And I don't agree with that, but I'd love to get your thoughts on it. Well, I don't know that they failed. It's really more about whether you understand the fundamental analysis and the discipline or whether you are drinking your own Kool-Aid, right? I think it was clear that they had made assumptions around the value of their projects uh, around recontracting rates, right? They just assumed that at the end of the period of the PPA that the customer would sign up for another 10 years or so of services uh, without demanding any discounts or anything like that, right? Which could be true, could be false, but probably isn't completely true. There's probably some people that would sign up for a further 10 years and others who would say, you know, hey, you know, take it off my roof. And then when you don't want to incur the expense of taking off the roof, they might say, well, we'll pay you 50 cents on the dollar to keep it up there and pay you out a residual value, right? I mean, some people are pretty smart and you can imagine that if that tactic got on Reddit, well, then everyone would know about it and use it to, you know, sort of force a concession out of the solar company. And so I think like some of the assumptions that they made in that area were a little aggressive. And then they separately spent hundreds of millions of dollars um, on customer acquisition that they claimed was going to come down over time, but they weren't seeing it come down over time. And in fact, every time they took their foot off the gas, they had you know less volume of closed sales, right? And so, so from a stock perspective, the question really is, when are you going to get to the other side? Like, when are you going to be able to get more referral business 
then have to acquire a company, uh, acquire customers from mass advertising, right? And when are you going to be able to be more conservative in your uh, valuation exercise for how valuable these contracts are over time, right? And I think at some point people said, we think you're stretching the assumptions farther than we're comfortable and the stock price started going down. I don't think it was because SolarCity was poorly run. I think they had a great management team and I think they did a great job and they were really best in class in almost every single way. I just think that the promises that they made to the street were not easily backed up in data. And so the street said, we're going to have to make your stock price go down. And, and sticking with publicly traded companies, you know, what is your view on Sunrun going forward? They've obviously become a number one in market share. Uh, we have a great relationship with them, but I'd love to get your opinion. What do you see for headwinds or tailwinds for a company like Sunrun going forward? Well, with full disclosure, you know, Lynn Jurich is on our board at Generate. So um, so this is going to be a largely positive review. But I actually do believe it as well. I mean, Sunrun has always been of the understanding that, that customer acquisition was a really expensive business and it was best outsourced to the partners um, and not something that the, you know, the sort of center did. Now, they're still doing a lot of branding and they're still trying to help on regulatory affairs and they're still trying to help people, you know, with general solar education. But they, I think, generally realize that the cost of customer acquisition needed to be pushed down to the developers because that's the people who are the most disciplined around, you know, keeping those costs in line and that they really need to focus on figuring out how to make the interest rates that they could share with the developers cheaper and cheaper by getting, you know, securitization to work, by getting insurance companies interested in the product, et cetera. And that's, I think, where they've spent a lot of their time. Um, they certainly obviously originate their own projects through their REC division that they purchased on the residential side, et cetera. But I think they've, they've had a much more disciplined approach. And because of that, they've got, you know, $100 million of free cash flow every year, and they seem to be a you know, a much more profitable business than some of their competitors. Is their core DNA, are they more of a finance company or are they more an installation company in your opinion? Well, they certainly started as a finance company, right? That was the initial business plan that Lynn and Ed and others started. I think that over time, the street told them you needed to be an installation company as well or else we're not going to let you go public. And so then they bought, you know, the, the residential division of REC. But in the end, I think that they continue to uh, try to out-innovate their competitors on uh, earning the trust of their investors, right? Earning the trust of the project finance investors and making sure that they are all on the same page around what are the risks, you know, what type of maintenance do you require? What kind of promises do you feel comfortable for us to make? And, you know, they're continually having that conversation with investors so that they know exactly what investors want to buy. Yes, uh, they are some of the smartest people that I have met in solar. So um, it's been a blessing to partner with them from a finance standpoint. Uh, number two residential installer, Vivid. You're obviously bullish on Sunrun. What are your thoughts on Vivid and their future direction? So I admittedly have spent way less time thinking about Vivid than I have Sunrun and Solar City. But I mean, part of what I love about Vivint is that they're committed to knocking on doors. I do think that that's a lost art. It's one that was 
widely prevalent in the 1960s and 70s. And for whatever reason, you know, most folks have moved away from that. But it is true that, you know, making a purchase like a solar system, which is, you know, fifteen to $25,000 for a residential customer is a deeply personal decision. And I think having an earnest person come to your door saying, hey, do you actually want to buy a solar system? And let me talk you through it is a really smart idea and one that, you know, really is more back to basics. And so I certainly appreciate that vision from them. Um, And I do think that because of Sunrun and others, that the financing is becoming more and more uh, commoditized and, you know, so that they can really focus on customer acquisition. And speaking of door to door, you have this group of people that are very unique and incredibly talented. Where do you see the sales funnels going with solar? Because obviously customer acquisition cost is a big issue for us as an industry. Where do you see it going? Because I see this as more of a complex sale than a simple sale. And a lot of people think that this can go online. I don't see personally how that happens in the short term. In the long term, I think you're going to need to sit down with a professional that really understands it because of the complexities. But I'd love to get your thoughts. Yeah. So I think where we're at now is that there are a lot of specialized people coming into the solar industry who are actually world class at answering that question. Right. So I would say for a long time, we sort of relied on the hunches of the CEOs of the companies, where today I think you've got a lot more data driven experts coming in saying, does Facebook advertising work? Which population should we be targeting? How do we actually get, you know, folks who have lower incomes uh, covered financing? How do we serve the whole market? Right. What are the um, influencer groups that these guys trust? that we could, you know, make donations to, to help, you know, get them on side to help promote solar more, right? And so you start to get all these complex conversations going on, which, you know, frankly, was the realm of consumer packaging companies and and folks like that forever. And now I think you see that level of expertise being hired into the solar industry. And it's frankly a level of expertise that has never been uh, hired into the energy efficiency industry, for instance. Energy efficiency has always been the realm of, um, you know, sort of technocrats and, uh, you know, engineers, unless the touchy-feely sort of marketing and PR folks, uh, which, you know, who are really essential at capturing hearts and minds. And these are all great points. It's so great to get your insights on these issues. Um, the one thing that you may agree or not, or disagree with us is that um, I personally have come from different industries and it's shocking to me the amount of dysfunctional um, stuff that goes on in our industry. And sometimes I think the lack of professionals in the construction industry is mind boggling to me. So I would ask you a question is that number one is, do you agree with that? All right. And then number two you know, what can we do to improve as an industry? So I don't know that I agree that solar is any worse than any other industry, right? I mean, if you're somebody who has ever gotten your house remodeled or your kitchen remodeled or whatever, I think you'd have the same horror stories around contractors coming in, doing 75% of the work and not finishing the last 25% or overcharging customers or whatever it is, right? Contractors have a bad reputation or a good reputation, mixed reputation in every industry. So I don't know that I would 
say that the solar industry is any better or worse in that in that fashion. I do think the solar industry has been slow to create sort of Yelp scores for contractors that are easily publishable and easy to find so that the top, you know, best rated contractors would get more business, right? And the folks who uh, practice, uh, you know, bad practices will get less. Um, so I think that in general, the solar industry is should strive for being better than the average, but it's not surprising to me that they're starting at the average. So you think it's more of a construction industry issue and it's not around solar? No, I don't think it's solar specifically. I, I do think the construction industry as a whole has this problem where you've got good contractors and con- and then bad contractors. And the bad contractors basically try to take advantage of their customers as opposed to just providing good customer service and you know taking a loss if they have to to make a customer happy. All right. How will the ITC tax credit, where do you see that going? The step down is obviously happening um, at the end of this year. What do you think the future of the tax credit is? Will it be extended? Will it expand? Will it go away? What are your thoughts on that? Well, it's certainly going to be an uphill battle. I mean, you know, uh, Senator Grassley, who cut the 2015 deal to extend the solar ITC and the wind PTC is committed to not going back on his word, which was that he was going to, you know, see these phase outs through and not provide another extension. So I think he's pretty committed to that. Separately, there's lots of politics going on, right? There's a lot of technical fixes to the Trump tax bill that the Republicans want to pass. And so if they want those technical fixes, then the Democrats are going to extract some, you know, sort of rent in return. And whether the ITC and PTC extension is used as that leverage point or whether it's something else that's used, you know, we'll have to see. I don't I don't know the answer to that. But I do think that it's certainly not a shoe in to get done. I also think that in general, the ability for the tax credit to scale uh, over time is going to be harder and harder because there's really only a fixed number of buyers for the tax credit. And uh, so at some point, uh, you just don't have enough. Uh, tax equity to go around if you're also going to be subsidizing, you know, fuel cells and anaerobic digesters and also, you know, carbon capture and all sorts of other innovations using tax credits. At some point, there'll be too many projects and too few tax credit buyers. And with the rise of, and it's a great point, but as we transition into with the rise of unsecured lenders like the Mosaic and the Lone Pal and the Sunlight. Um, they have taken market share away from the PPA market. Where do you see, um, you know, what is your thoughts on loans versus PPAs? And where do you think the market is going? Obviously, there's a lot of disconnect between some companies that say PPA are the future. And then if you look at a majority of the buyers, it seems like the trend is definitely going towards purchase. Well, I certainly think that when you look at the average cost per watt, that's charged by uh, contractors or you know solar installers. Their average cost per watt is probably seventy-five cents a watt cheaper to cash buyers, right? And so people who arrange their own financing and just pay the solar installer in cash get a way better deal, probably twenty percent cheaper. But in that right? sen- so I, but in that scenario, ahead. there's only a small percentage of people that actually pay cash. Most of the purchases are done. At least we see through loan financing. 
So when you look at the loan financing versus the PPA, what direction do you see us going as an industry? No, I appreciate that, but I but I just I think that the loan financing could be arranged by the buyer instead of by the seller. So right now what you're saying is that the financing options offered by the solar installer to the end customer are either loans or PPAs. In that case, I would say loans are winning market share and will continue to win market share because frankly, I think um, customers have a lower rate of return expectation than the market. So in the end, you know, customers get a better deal um, through the loans usually than they do through the PPAs. But ultimately, my sense is where this whole industry has to move is providing the customer financing as opposed to providing the solar installer financing. Like you could imagine there being a solar credit card, for instance, where I go to this, the, the customer and basically say, you know, for as long as you spend $5,000 a year on this credit card, I'm going to give you 4% interest financing for your solar system. Great. Um, where did the term solar coaster come from? Well, it comes from the fact that um, in all of these policies, wind probably has the same exact uh, phenomenon. Um, you have a lot of these two-year extensions, three-year extensions. You have a lot of these um, ebbs and flows that are driven by global events, right? I mean, so when the Spanish market was super hot in 2008, they were stealing panels from everyone. And there was actually a global solar panel shortage, right? And so solar panel prices went up. And so when you have all these exogenous things occur, remember the Obama administration put tariffs on solar panels twice during the Obama administration, right? And so um, so you, you look at this stuff and you say, Wow, you know, I didn't think that was going to happen, but um, as a solar industry participant, I have to get used to all the ups and downs of the solar industry if I want to play in this industry successful. I can't, you know, complain about how volatile it is because, frankly, the people who are best at dealing with the solar coaster are the ones who make the most money. All right, couple more questions: uh, long tail versus short term, short short tail on the residential installers. I see. As we get bigger and bigger, I see significant economies of scale, but there's people out there that think that, you know, that disagree with that concept. So again, love to get your feedback on that. Well, so I think I'm pretty on the record about long tail. Like I, I in general believe that um, the solar industry is a deeply local and personal uh, industry. And I think the more um, you try to aggregate it under one uh, roof, the more your costs balloon. So for instance, if you have a husband wife team with, you know, three or four crews, you're talking about a group that could probably get to 20, $30 million a year of revenue pretty easily. Some, some are even at 50 million a year in revenue and their costs are super low. They don't have to get audited. They don't have to worry about people stealing money from the till. Like they don't have to worry about any of that stuff. As soon as you get to like 12 offices, 15 offices, 18 offices, you start to worry about all that stuff, which is why some folks have decided to move to like a franchise model, which is a little bit better because now you have one brand to invest in, but you have independently run shops. Um, but then you can have like, you know, mass purchasing discounts. I just think in general, the smaller unit um, is better because you know, frankly, that's how roofers and electricians and plumbers and all those folks have gone as well. When you look at people who've tried to aggregate up those industries, 
it hasn't worked that well. I know that it hasn't worked that well. And that's actually one of the things that I try to unpack is why it did not work. And the one thing that I've seen is a lack of process, standard operating procedures that just don't exist in the contracting business, especially in the solar contracting business. If you have those processes in place and you have those SOPs in place, I disagree with you. I don't understand that they have they, the local will be at such a disadvantage. They will have to charge more to the consumer because of the lack of economies of scale, assuming you do have the process and the SOPs in place, which is a big assumption because no one's ever done it. Well, I mean, I totally agree with your math. I'm not disagreeing with your math. I'm just agreeing. I'm just disagreeing with the way I think it's going to roll out, right? So, like, it's very obvious. Remember when Solar City was hot, they were like, well, you know, our cost of installation is down to like $1.85 a watt, and we're able to get these modules for so much cheaper, and we bought Zep, and so we can actually do all that stuff in-house. And they had all sorts of reasons why their cost structure was super low on the installation side, but their overhead was gigantic. It was like 2 bucks a watt above that, right? Where the overhead, a lot of the smaller guys, sure, they, their costs were two fifty a watt to install instead of a dollar eighty, but their overhead was only about ten percent above that, right? They could actually make money at three bucks a watt, where Solar City couldn't, right? And so you ended up in this situation where um, the advent of outside money and professional investors into a platform resulted in. Um, those folks wanting to keep that entire spread instead of giving that spread to the customers to actually get um, more market share. So then the question really becomes, if you're pricing at roughly the same price as the local guy that's inefficient, you know, do you actually compete favorably? And a lot of people are like, mm, I'd rather take the guy who, you know, whose kids goes to the same school as my kids than the guy who has a 1-800 number. And how much of that overhead is attributed to project finance, attorneys, all the stuff that SolarCity was doing versus the installation part of the business? That's the mistake that I think people are making is that no one has had a focused approach to post-sale operational excellence in this industry. And everyone tries to diversify and focus on other things. And that's what I could never figure out in the SolarCity financial statements was how much of that was attributed attributed to the installation business. And if you really carve that out, I think they were doing much better on the installation side than people really understand. But that's just my opinion. In general, I would say that um, there are economies of scale and those economies of scale are not limitless. So, um, so like if like whatever your thesis is, um, let's call it $100 million, right? Great. There's economies of scale at $100 million. Maybe you tweak the model and say, well, this part of our accounting group or this part or whatever else could you know, easily scale to $150 million without adding more bodies. I can just use more technology. Fine. Whatever that number is, there's a finite number to it. If you go to $5 billion, that then your costs increase um, linearly. And so what you find is, is that at 150 million, you're actually far more profitable than at 1.5 billion. Got it. Thank right? you. And so you pick your number. Maybe for you, it's not the $20 million number. Maybe it's the $300 million number. But at some point, I can prove to you 
that as you get bigger and bigger and bigger and more far flung, the people that you bring in want to get paid a million dollars a year. The people that you bring in basically have to have a lot more autonomy. And you basically start to deviate from the standard operating procedures that you think you're living under because people cry about how their market is special and how you have to do different things in our market than you do in the California market and whatever. Right. And so I've just found that there's a number and we can disagree on whether it's 30 million or 300 million, but almost nobody believes that 3 billion is more profitable than 300 million. Great insights. So um, I want to tell you, and I know Sean might have some more questions. Um, I've always in my career tried to align myself with people that are smarter than me and to be able to kind of pick your brain and have this conversation and to talk to people like Billy Parrish and to talk to people like Tange Sarah and yourself has been amazing for me. So a lot of this is just me learning the history of solar and trying to understand this industry so much more. So thank you so much for spending um, your precious time with us. Well, my pleasure. I mean, you're the one who's making the next... Uh, history for solar. So really want to thank you for all of the leadership and, you know, chutzpah you guys are showing in the, in the industry. Yeah, and if you don't mind answering a couple more, uh, of course. when we told, when we let people know that you were coming in for, for this podcast, uh, the questions started rolling in. So I have a, just a couple that were really interesting to me. I'd like to see how interesting they are to you. Um, one of them was, uh, when it comes to like permits, inspections, interconnection, inter- incentives, what would it take to remove the soft costs from residential? Well, local. That's that, I mean, that's my point, right? So if if you work locally, let's say in you know a county or a city, and you said I want to reduce soft costs, well, you would go to the city leaders and you'd say. I want to reduce soft costs. Here's the problem. In Germany, they basically say this, this, and this, and they basically give you approval in two hours. Here, the approval is three days. Here's the software from Minneapolis you need to like install to be able to do a two-hour you know, approval. And if you're really serious about reducing the cost of solar, like this is what you do. And in general, the way that the U.S. works is that gets done at the city-by-city, county-by-county level. It's not something that even happens at the state level. You know, we can try to impose European-like efficiency in the United States, but my sense is there's going to be a lot of pushback. So, you know, it's local companies basically pushing their local cities or counties to do things the right way. That's great insight. Um, another one that came in that I thought was, uh, I mean, it's it's pretty general, obviously, but policy always is an issue, renewable policy. And uh, one that the government should be involved in, do you think that they should stay out of it or should they stick in it? Well, I think that, you know, we're talking about fundamental things, right? And, you know, I don't know how easy it was for people to wrap their brain around this stuff in the past just because it was so amorphous. But today you've got public safety shutoffs in California. I think people are starting to realize how deeply personal and important it is to have reliable electricity to your livelihood, right? There are a lot of small businesses, for instance, in California who've shut down in the last few weeks because losing four days worth of business actually meant the difference between being able to survive and, and failing. Right. Right. And so there are a lot of people who are living paycheck to paycheck who didn't get paid for four days because their restaurant was shut down and they failed to meet their rent payment. Right. So they've either put more money on their credit card or got evicted. Right. And so I think it's important to recognize what the central role is of government 
in electricity, water, sewer, waste, transportation, et cetera, right? So we can innovate on the margins, but it is critically important that policy be right in the middle of making sure that people get the essential services that they think that they're getting. And today, people are far, finally starting to realize stuff that we said 10 years ago, which is that you can't rely on your utility to provide you high quality electricity, that in fact, the US actually has the worst grid in the entire OECD nations, right? So we have, you know, I think an average of like two minutes of outages a year in Japan, and we have an average of like 102 minutes of outages here in the United States. And in some places it's four days. Yeah, right? I don't think and everybody so, realizes that. I don't know, think that's, that's a pretty, that's, I don't think that's very common knowledge, honestly. No. And so an extra $10 a month to make sure that you actually have your livelihood protected seems like a pretty cheap insurance policy to me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, these next, this next question is it's around education. I thought this was a really, a, a really neat take on it. Um, so as solar and storage is forecasted to continue to grow over the next decade, um, how, how's the world preparing for the next generation? So what's the view on the state of education, how it needs to evolve, uh, to better suit renewables, specifically solar? Well, I think we're all over that, right? I mean, there are many States in the country now where renewable energy education is mandatory, so like in Maryland, where I live, every fourth grader goes through a renewable energy class. Uh, the same thing is true in Florida and lots of other places. So in general, when you look at the customers of residential solar, um, there's no division by political persuasion or anything else. In general, um, you know, I think, in, if anything, more Republicans get solar on their roof than Democrats. And so but also there's increasingly no difference between um young people and old people. There's actually a ton of old people getting solar as well because they're on fixed incomes and they don't want the variability in the electricity costs. Um, and there's definitely a lot of young people getting it. There's definitely a lot of people making $40,000 a year getting solar now. And, you know, it's not just rich people. And so, like, I think in general, we've done that. I would say that we spent a tremendous amount of time and effort on this solar education piece starting in the 90s with the Florida Solar Energy Center. And today there's probably like 50 to 60 curriculums out there many of which are managed by the Solar Foundation um, that pretty much every school district in the country is starting to take advantage of. That's great. And these are the programs that you think can scale? I think they have scaled. I mean, could we do more? Of course. And there's plenty of people like starting to create children's books for with solar and folks are creating like, you know, content on YouTube that my kids can watch. And so, I mean, there's a lot more going on, more documentaries and other things being done. So there's a lot more content being created all the time. So we're certainly always behind, but it's not like we haven't done anything. Right. All righty. Well, uh, I think that that is uh, going to be our day. Is uh, anything else you wanted to add? No, I just wanted to say that the next hill that we have to climb is diversity. And I do think that the solar industry is committed to, to figuring that out, right? Figuring out how to get a lot more women involved in the jobs that we have, a lot more people of color, you know, et cetera. I think, you know, the U the U.S. solar industry is already one of the top destinations for military veterans, which I'm very proud of. Um, and so I just think we have to continue to make sure that we're inclusive, right? If we want to sell more solar to more populations, our workforce has to look like the populations that we're trying to serve. Absolutely. That's why I'm, I'm proud of, you know, of, of freedom, at least, you know, we've, we've been taking part with wise, um, which I think is great for women in the industry. Um, so I, I think, I think you're spot on with that. 
In fact, eight out of our 10 senior executives are women. And if you take our field personnel out of the equation, we're 54% women. And even if you add the field personnel in, we're 36% women. And we even did, um, we looked at the economics and actually women make more money than men for the same role. So that's been- Well, they do a better job than men in the same role. I agree. agree. And it just happened that way. We have no initiative, but they've just always been the best. And we are proud to have- um, you know, our leadership be mainly women and it's awesome, but they're the best people for the job. If it was men, we would have them in that role. But the reality is that the women in our company have performed the best and we're proud of it. Absolutely. Good. Well, I appreciate that. Let's, uh, let's keep, you know, redoubling our efforts in that area and really, really happy to see the leadership you guys are showing in that area. Absolutely. And so on that note, uh, I think we're going to wrap that up for the day. Jigger, thanks so much for joining us. This, this was a great conversation. Um, this just keeps rolling and rolling and, and it just keeps getting better with time. And we're, we're so proud of what's going on here and so happy to have you as a part of it. So thank you so much. Well, it's been my pleasure. And that brings us to the end of our podcast. For more information on Jigger and Generate Capital, head over to generatecapital.com. Also, make sure to pick up a copy of Creating Climate Wealth wherever fine books are sold. For everything you need to know about Freedom Forever and the Solar Disruption Theory podcast, visit solardisruptiontheory.com. Also, make sure to subscribe, leave a review, and help us share this podcast with the world. On behalf of Brett, Jigger, and myself, thanks for listening to the Solar Disruption Theory podcast. We'll talk to you soon. Solar Disruption Theory is presented by Freedom Forever. For the latest news and updates in the solar industry, subscribe to our newsletter at freedomforever.com. Also check us out on Instagram and Facebook at Freedom Forever Solar. Freedom now, freedom tomorrow, freedom forever. Madden and Mitchell Media.